Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 309 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO and founder of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find an awesome writing community and lots of writing courses. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, otherwise known as A.L. Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series. How are you, Al? I am okay. That's good. <laughs> yep. I'm sorry. I think, I think I was excited last week, wasn't I, that I'm yes, not excited. I'm just okay. What? Actually, no, I am a little tiny bit excited. Okay. I, like, I have a, a, a blip of excitement. Okay. Um, well, you know, my son, Joe, is yes. a book boy, also known yes. as bookboy.com.au, is yeah. uh, a singer-songwriter. Well, yes, he's released a new single which is very, very exciting. exciting. That is very exciting. That's not a little bit. That's not a blip of excitement. That's dumb. Well, it's kind of his excitement. I don't, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you're excited. But I'm not one of those stage mums. You know, I'm not sitting on the side of the stage, you know. It's <sighs> just not how I roll. But, yeah, no, I'm excited for him, shall we say okay. that. He's excited. It is exciting. Okay. Um, but, yeah, so this time he – so last time he did an EP and mm. he uh, did it as a limited edition CD, which you can still get if you would like one. Uh, mm-hmm. You can have a signed limited edition CD. It's going to be worth a million one day for sure. <laughs> um, and – you know, he just did a couple of tracks and that he basically, he didn't sort of put it out on streaming or anything because it was mm. like the first time he'd ever done anything like that. And his voice was in the process of breaking mm. at the time that, that that particular one was recorded. So we kind of knew that six months later, he wasn't going to sound like that. It's, it's a really interesting time to, to record. So we basically mm. did that to kind of just capture that particular moment in time because he was 13 and, you know, he'd written all these great songs and so we mm. we did that. Uh, so this one is, is you know, all him, driven by him and it's uh, he's kind of like going into a new phase of, of what he's doing now, uh, which is great because it means it's less about me having to do it for him, which is mm. awesome. Um, so he has recorded this song. He has uh, organised it to be distributed. It's going out on iTunes. It's going out on Spotify. It's going out on all the various things wow. and, uh, you know, it's released and uh, he's very excited about it. So if you guys would do me the solid favour of uh, going to your favourite platform and having a listen to his song. So his name is Joe Visser, V-I-S-S-E-R, and he's, his song is called Freak Show Carnival. It's about a, a summer travelling carnival that comes through uh, on the south coast towns every year. That was the inspiration for it, though it doesn't wow. necessarily sound like that. Um, it's got a bit of a, a summer kind of feel to it. And it's um, it's available now. So if you guys would go and have a listen to it, I would love you forever. Um, he, You can find links to all of the various platforms on his website, uh, if you go to joevisa.com, joevisa.com, um, and I'll put a link in the show notes to it as well, and you'll find a link on the platforms. But you could probably just search it. Hopefully, it'll come up. That's I think that's how it works, isn't it? Or you can have a look at him on Facebook. He's on Facebook at Joe Visa Music. Um, so please help me out by making him feel popular. <laughs> <laughs> I will definitely be downloading that and buying that off iTunes. Thank you All right, so much. Freak Show Carnival, fantastic. Yes, thank you. Now, um, because it is the festive season, we thought we would remind you that another great way for you to help out the writer in your life, if you're not sure of what to buy them, is with a gift voucher. So you can get gift vouchers at the Australian Writers' Centre for different denominations of, you know, money, uh, depending on how much you'd like to spend, or maybe you can pull in with other people and and um, spend 
uh, buy a course for someone. And um, yeah, just go to writercenter.com.au and have a look at the button called gift vouchers and you'll be able to gift someone. The gift you could of just writing. buy one for yourself and also slide it yourself. under the tree anonymously for Santa. I think Santa. that's a good idea. Mm. I think so too. Yes. Um, now, the other link that I thought was an interesting one on the Writer Centre blog was the uh, one about exercises for writers, keeping healthy at your desk. And the reason that I found this so very interesting is that I am absolutely hopeless at doing all of these things. I am one of these people, I, I know, you know, it's one of these things where you know what you should be doing mm. and yet you are not doing it. Now, I do get up and walk a lot. So, you know, we've discussed this so many times. I've walked the dog, I do all those things. And I am doing incidental stuff because I'm going out and hanging the washing out during the day and things like that. Because, you know, when you work from home, there's mm. always some form of procrastination to be, to be enjoyed. But um, what I don't really do, and I've realized that this is a bad thing, is I don't look after, I, like I will sit if I'm actually, you know, in the zone, I will sit in one position for like two or three hours yeah. and you don't even realize that the time has gone past, yeah. um, you know, and then you suddenly realize that you're sitting there with your shoulders all hunched up and you've got that turtleneck thing going on mm. and, you know, your wrists are sore. And um, mm. so, yes, so I read the article with great interest. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that you ran the article, Valerie, because you're mm -hmm. concerned about my well-being. Of course. Yes, that's <laughs> Your right. well-being is <laughs> always on my mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because it's interesting, isn't it? Like do you do stuff? Because it is like, you know, the opening line of the article is, uh, which is on the Writer's Centre blog and we will put the link in the show notes, is, you know, writing is a surprisingly physical experience. And, you know, I've heard you type so I know for a fact that it's a very physical, like it's almost like you go to war with the keyboard. That is how loud your typing is. Yeah. I suspect mine is also the same, but I can't hear my own. Um, so, you know, it, do you are, you, are you aware of what you should be doing? Are you doing what you should be doing? Okay. So I used to do a lot more. In the back in the day, back in the day, I would have this um, routine of I don't remember the the word count, but let's just say it was five hundred words. Where every five hundred words or so, you know, I wasn't religious about it. Where every five hundred words or so, I would actually then go do ten push ups. <laughs> Seriously? Yes. Or um, ten. What do you call them? The the tricep ones. You know, dips. Tricep. Dips, yeah, dips. I believe they're called. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and I got really, that was really very useful because I'm, I became really good at push-ups and tricep dips at the time. Um, and I did that for quite a period and that was the way I did my push-ups and tricep dips. Um, but as the years have gone on, <laughs> Yes. I am less inclined to do, to do that and I really need to get back into it. So, um, yes, not so not so good these days. So really I wrote the article. I mean, I didn't write the article. Um, really we ran the article for me as well. <laughs> oh, so it was for you. Not There I was thinking it was all about me. Like I find it so like it, it goes through like basic exercises like push-ups and calf raises and all those sorts of things. Mm. Um, the only thing I think I probably do is neck stretches and shoulder rolls and that is mm. basically just necessity. You know, when you yes. sort of like you sit up and you suddenly go, oh, and you stretch and mm. whatever. So I do that. But um, yeah, it's, I don't know. Like I'm always, and of course the last suggestion is that writers should do yoga and we've discussed my 
aversion to yoga on many occasions. So yes. I won't be doing that, but I should be doing that. And I, that's just the thing, you know, you know what you should be doing and are you doing it? Probably not. Mm. So if you know what you should be doing, but you're not doing it, or if you don't know what you should be doing and you're not doing it, then have a look at this article because it will at least maybe get you to start thinking about what you should be doing, right? Yeah, and you can do it all at your desk, which is the whole point of the article. Yeah. Um, exercises for writers to keep healthy at your desk. And we'll put Excellent. the link in the show notes, which, of course, you can find at soyouwanttobearwriter.com.au. I also want to give a big shout-out to everyone in the So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community on Facebook. You are all so awesome. It's great to see the conversations that are happening in there all about writing. If you're a listener and you haven't joined yet, please do join. It's free to join. Uh, just search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community uh, on Facebook and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. Also, a big shout out to everyone who is going to be entering Furious Fiction this Ooh, week. This is Ooh. getting competitive out there, isn't it? It's I great. love watching it. Yes, it's I tell fantastic. you what, it's competitive and yet supportive. It's yes, a really very unusual thing. Um, there is a very, very supportive group of, of people involved in it, um, you know, the superfan team, and it's mm. uh, it's just great to see everybody encouraging each other to enter, to get it yes. done, to, you know, and if you submit and you talk about it on the Writer Centre Twitter um, feed or you talk about it in the in the um, commu Facebook community, there's going to be like 25 people there to cheer you and say, yeah. you're a genius just for getting it in, which I just think is Absolutely. fantastic. Yeah. And if you're not sure what it is, go to furiousfiction.com.au. It uh, starts on at 5 p.m. on the first Friday of every month and uh, you have 55 hours to write 500 words, as in a short story, and if you win, you win $500. So it's a pretty good short story competition, and it happens every month. So make sure you get in on it and sign up to uh, be in the fan club. It's free because then you'll get notified immediately when um, when the details are released because basically at 5 p.m. on the first Friday of every month, there's a couple of parameters that you need to include in that story. Yeah. So check it out. The last one was was truly challenging, I feel, just judging by the effect it had on everybody with all the emojis and everything in it. I think oh. it was, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's different every month, so check it out this month. Yeah. So – we have a competition for you. You could win one of three copies of The Truants by Kate Weinberg. Jess Walker, middle child of a middle-class family, has perfected the art of vanishing in plain sight. But when she arrives at a concrete university campus under flat, grey, East Anglian skies, her world flares with colour, drawn into a tightly knit group of rule breakers led by their maverick teacher, Lorna Clay, Jess begins to experiment with a new version of herself. But the dynamic between the friends begins to darken as they share secrets, lovers and finally a tragedy. Soon Jess is thrown up against the question she fears most. What is the true cost of an extraordinary life? Interesting. Oh. All right, entries close on the 9th of December and if you want your chance to win, just follow the instructions on writerscentre.com.au slash win. That's writerscentre.com.au slash win. Right. Are you ready for the word of the week, Al? Do you know, I was contemplating before we started this podcast what you would do if I said no. Oh. I'm not ready. What if I'm not ready? What happens? I don't get a choice in this. <laughs> 
well, you could say it and okay, find I'm, out. I look, I'm ready. <laughs> of course I'm ready. How could I not be ready? Obdurate. O-B-D-U-R-A-T-E. Obdurate. Do you know what that means? Um, no. The hint comes from the du, that's in D-U-R, so obdurate, the D-U-R in the middle. Uh, the hint comes from that because it's like endurable, uh, sorry, enduring or durable. So obdurate often describes a person who is hard-hearted. So you might say the kind, um, uh, the king remained obdurate and would not pardon the peasant. There you go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the, your, <laughs> your excitement is just. I'm astounded. What can I say? Well, you know, I, I told right. you I was. I think secretly I wasn't really ready, right? All right. <laughs> Fine. Let's move on then to our writer in residence this week. It's got. We've got a great interview with Elliot Perlman. He probably needs no introduction. He's been around forever. He, um, oh, he wrote three dollars back in the day, and of course that got made into uh, um, a, a series with uh, David Wenham. Um, he wrote the reasons I won't be coming, a collection of stories. Seven types of ambiguity also got made into a very successful television series, and his latest book is. Maybe the horse will talk. But let's hear directly from Elliot Perlman. Thanks so much for joining us today, Elliot. My pleasure, Valerie. Congratulations on your latest book, Maybe the Horse Will Talk. Uh, just for some of the readers who haven't read your book yet, can you tell us what it's about? Look, it's about um, toxicity of the in the workplace spilling over into your personal life and your family life. Mm-hmm. Um, I can I can sort of elaborate on the plot if you would like. Yeah, um, just tell us the premise about the, you know, the main characters, the situation that he finds himself in. That sure, sure, sure. Well, um, the, the central protagonist is Stephen Masarov and Stephen is 32. He was a teacher. He married fellow teacher Eleanor, mm-hmm. but they found and they had at that time one child and they kept finding these waves of financial insecurity um, sort of splashing on their faces right up to their nostrils. And they came to the conclusion that at least one of them needed a better paying job. So they decided that he, Stephen, would go back to university and get a law degree if he could. And then uh, he would try and get a job, which would hopefully uh, make them in a financially more secure position. The problem was that by the time they he, he was in the middle of his degree, they were as a couple drifting. Mm. They naively thought that when he finished and got a job, things would be much better. Well, of course, things only got worse. And when we meet Stephen, um, they have two children. He's working in a mega corporate commercial law firm in the CBD uh, in this case of Melbourne, mm. and, uh, you know, one of those uh, places on the 50th floor, et cetera, um, and they're not living together. Eleanor has asked him to move out. He comes home every night at 6 o'clock to help bathe and feed the kids, put them to bed, tell them the stories, and help clean up the kitchen with the not-so-secret hope of reconciling with Eleanor. Mm. And then... 
he goes back into the city, back to the office to, to add more hours to his timesheet in the hope of making budget for the day. And when we meet him for the first time, he comes at about 3.30 in the morning, he comes to the realisation in his rented flat alone, I am absolutely terrified of losing a job I absolutely hate. <laughs> and that is going to become an iconic phrase and I can already see it on the publicity posters for the miniseries. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so he's a lawyer. You have a background as a lawyer. Um but that was a long time ago because you've been writing novels for quite some time now. Yeah. How much have, did you draw on that or did you kind of have to revisit your contemporaries at the time to see if it's still like that from when you were there? Um, that's a really good question. I, I, I did both, if you like. I, I had the very strong hunch that things were at least as bad, if not worse. <laughs> I did ask my contemporaries and I also asked younger lawyers. And um, what I would find with my contemporaries is um, those who were still in the law um, had often, you know, almost by definition been the survivors and they had found perhaps an oasis of, of, of sanity. And I don't want to suggest firstly that they're, you know, everybody in that world is insane, but it does lend itself to corporate psychopaths. And the other thing I wanted to suggest is that I, you know, as you've alluded, um, I drew on that background because it's my personal background, but the kind of uh, toxicity in the workplace, I think, is frankly everywhere in contemporary Australia, if, if not, you know, in, in developed countries all around the world. And so while it is set in a law firm, all of the um, the craziness, the the need to be contactable 24-7, the, um, the setting of absolutely crazy arbitrary targets for people to meet, um, the, the managerial jargon, you know, the, the attempt to create a new language out of words that have just been made up to make it sound like certain people know things that are a, a discipline that other people don't know or haven't studied, you know, all of that. Uh, not, not to mention, of course, um, the bullying, mm. the sexual harassment. All of that is definitely not uh, found only in law firms. It's it's everywhere. And I saw this kind of disgusting behaviour when I was a baby lawyer, mm -hmm. and I should say I'm a recovering lawyer now. <laughs> uh, and and for a while, uh, I did both. I, I wasn't when I was a solicitor in in places like the law firm I've described, mm. Freely Savage Carter Blanche. Um, great name. Great <laughs> thank name. You. <laughs> thank you. I, um, I, I I certainly couldn't write. I mean, I could barely kind of get my head off the pillow to get into work every day. Mm. It was exhausting and, and frankly, soul-destroying. But then I took a position as an associate to a Supreme Court judge and I went back to short story writing, which I'd been doing before becoming even a law student. And uh, then I went to the bar to become a barrister. And for a while I did both. And then I found I, I couldn't do both, particularly given um, the kind of novels I wanted to write, which um, daunted me in terms of their um, the ambition of the plots and the themes that I wanted to tackle 
I felt I couldn't really, I couldn't dabble in it. I needed to make a choice. And I thought I'll, I'll stop being a lawyer for a while. And uh, as it turned out, I, I, I haven't gone back. Mm. Well, the rest is history, so they say. So, you know, I mean, um, you've carved out this incredible career as an author and, um, you know, your books have been made into movies. Um, this one I'm already seeing as a movie or a series, as I've mentioned. This is set very much in the corporate world and um, is that something, is that a setting or an environment that you particularly wanted to explore? I know you wanted to explore these themes of toxicity, but um, I feel that there's a real lack of um, novels set in this environment compared to all the other novels out there. And I think it's fantastic. I think it's refreshing. I think it's such a great setting. What did you have to make sure you did in order to make it relatable to all those people who aren't in the corporate space? I, I, I hope that it is. Um, and oh, I, yeah. thank you. <laughs> I, I think essentially the idea of there being uh, honest, hardworking, well-meaning people that get bullied and get tripped up by circumstance, um, circumstances beyond their control in a system that is largely, frankly, rigged against ordinary people, I think that that's, um, uh, that's relatable to people mm. in all works, walks of life. And, um, you know, this feeling, I, I, I sort of began with the view that there is an epidemic of cr chronic stress in Australia mm. and, and that it's coming from the world of work. At, at both extremes. So those people that are forced to be, you know, as I said, working disgusting hours, which are frankly more hours than um, medieval serfs. <laughs> and, and, and even then, you know, you think, um, oh, well, I have a friend who has one of those jobs in the city and uh, they wear suits every day and um, I imagine they're making tremendous money. <laughs> um, but these people are they're oppressed, they're sort of white-collar wage slaves. Mm. And um, then there are the people at the other extreme, firstly the much maligned unemployed, and then a larger category than the much maligned unemployed who don't really get spoken about by really either side of politics very much, but they're ever-growing, this category, and that is the category of the involuntarily underemployed. These are the people who are scrambling in the gig economy for more hours. So they have at least one hour. By definition, they have one hour, otherwise they'd be counted as unemployed. But they don't have anywhere near enough hours to feel any sense of safety, security, to be able to plan for their future, to be able to pay or pay off or pay for their education. Um, to, you know, to, 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 it's often to just put food on the table for their children. Mm. And um, the, the knowledge of this, I should say that group of people, the involuntarily underemployed in the gig economy, variously, depending on the cycle, the time in the economic cycle, will equal 
between 15 and 20%. Yeah. And so when you add the underemployed to the unemployed, you get variously between, say, 18 and 25% of the Australian workforce who don't have enough hours. And it's the knowledge of this, not necessarily the precise statistic, but the intuitive knowledge that it's really scary down there without enough hours that forces the people with full-time jobs Mm. to put up with appalling behaviour and have people above them kind of leave their footprints all over their foreheads. Mm. And, And I thought there will be very few people in the workforce or who have been in the workforce who won't be able to relate to this in some way yeah, and and, and I, what I found on the on on the book tour so far is, I get stopped by people who have so many stories, and and they are not mm-hmm. just lawyers by any means. People in government, people in health, um, people in pretty much any institution, um, we've gone nuts, and people don't behave very well in the workforce. Yes. Now you are explore these very big themes um but the story itself and i'm this isn't a spoiler because this this is how it starts the book but the main character Stephen, um essentially in order to keep this job that he doesn't that that he doesn't like at all that he hates yeah kind of takes uh on this massive massive thing that he needs to achieve right Mm -hmm. and then he goes about attempting to achieve it, and it's massive. So, how did you did you already know how he was going to achieve it? I know there's many there's other lines through the book as well, but in this particular aspect, did you know at the from the outset what was going to unfold, or did you kind of think, oh, let's just see what happens? No, I I always know the end. Um, to me. It's terribly important and it might be a function of my personality, um, which is, you know, anxious. <laughs> um, I, I need to know, perhaps not for a short story, although even then for a longer short story and and particularly in my short story collection, the longest story is really a novella. It's about 100 pages. Um, I certainly with longer pieces, I need to know how it's going to end uh, for a number of reasons. Um, and I know that listeners um, to the podcast are are writers or aspiring writers. Um, but for me personally, it helps me to be able to craft the plot and to see things coming. And I get excited about it if I think, oh, what a lovely connection that is. Um it, it makes me feel more confident. I, could, I know you, you often, um, and probably you've spoken to, you know, you've interviewed writers who are the opposite to me in this respect. Mm. Writers that say, look, I, I find my characters and they lead me around their plots. Um, I hardly ever do that. It might be that in getting from A to Z, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go to G before W, sorry, W before G um, just by chance because it, it seemed funny or something. But essentially, I need to know how it's going to go. Mm. And and um, 
because it, you couldn't get to the end after spending years of work on something and think, you know, the first part of this might be terrific or the idea for it's terrific, but the ending is terrible. And um, as much as we need to excite people with the beginning, we can't uh, rip them off with the ending mm. uh, just as much. I mean, the ending obviously is incredibly important. So um, I need to know how it ends. So, I, yes, in this case, as with my other novels, I knew how it was going to end. Mm. So obviously you have this great story planned out to some level anyway before you start. But one of the things also is that, uh, it, this book in particular is very much about human relationships of all different kinds of relationships and the the way certain characters interact with each other. And you manage to really help the reader get to know the characters just by these very, very small descriptions, even of a reaction to an email or the way, you know, a child is being spoken to or just these very small nuances that tell us more about the character. What do you do to um, develop those characters in your brain and flesh them out? And on a practical level, how do you flesh them out? Do you write whole backstories for them so you have like a, a backgrounder on them or something how does how do you let your characters form to such a level that all these little nuances can show up through the text um it, it, it's funny i don't really write a backstory for them but i seem to almost have it when i picture so for example um masarov stephen masarov is our every person mm. and in order for the novel to succeed, I need the reader to like him and feel that they could be him. Um, you know, how do you, how do you how do you uh, deal with um, with an unfair situation, an impossible situation, um, trying to achieve more than one thing at once when everything seems stacked against you and you're honest? You know that um, that. That is sort of what informs him and or for me. But then um, I decided, wouldn't it be a, a great idea to have another lawyer who is technically his adversary, but almost becomes a combination of best friend and mentor, but somebody who is completely different to him in personality in the sense that um, – Masarov is the lawyer you would hope you would find everywhere in the sense of being completely straight down the line, honest, doesn't cut any corners. Um, you want to rely on a person like that. Mm -hmm. um, but the other lawyer I have in mind, a character called Betka, A.A. Mm -hmm. Betka, is, um, is the opposite. He's a kind of a Mr. Fix-It. He's um, a rogue, really, a lovable rogue, I hope, a very entertaining uh, funny rogue, but still somebody, if you said, um, look, I, I have a problem and I need to, to solve this problem, but I, I can't because in order to, to achieve X, I would need to do Y and Y I think is probably illegal. <laughs> and then Betka would say, Valerie, leave it with me. And you say, well, what, hang on, wait a minute. What are you going to do? He goes, no, shh, don't, just leave it with me. So... I should have this fixed for you by next Wednesday. And, you know, my sister said um, everybody should have their own Betka in yes. their lives to take, to, to take 
dive into a problem, lift it up and, and throw it out of your life. I mean, wouldn't, you know, that would be fantastic. So I knew that he was kind of roguish, but he has a heart of gold and definitely his intentions are good. But um, knowing that, I knew that, you know, he would occasionally do things that make you roll your eyes and even, you know, he might say things like, you know, he, he's trying to be integrated into the life of a small child without giving away too many spoilers. And, and um, but, but he's never been really closely connected to a tiny child. And so he sometimes, in speaking to other people, refers to the child the way we would refer to a dog. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, even though he adores the child, he loves the child, but he's kind of a, a bit of a clumsy parent. So that, that sort of thing um, shapes my view of him and what he would say uh, if he's forced to take the small child somewhere that is incongruous for a small child to be. Um, sorry, this is a very long-winded answer. No, but it's, 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 it's more... I get a picture of the character and then I, I pretty much know how they would behave in, in, in the situations I'm going to put them in. Of course, sometimes I'll get it wrong and I'll, I'll change it and I'll think, oh, no, that's actually um, – he wouldn't go that far or, or he would, you know, he'd go further or, you know, something like that. So I see my characters um, quite well-defined – I just see them that way, you know, like the character of Jessica, who is in many senses uh, the heroine of the novel. And, um, yeah, I'm being very careful. I don't want to give too much away. But um, she's quite feisty and plucky and super smart. Um, so I know that she will, in terms of her audacity, in terms of her chutzpah, she will come somewhere between Masarov and Betka. She won't do things that Betka would do, but she'll definitely do a little more than Masarov would do. Mm. Um, and, and so in this way, I start to see them and I know almost instinctively what they would do. Mm. When you're actually in the depths of writing, so mm -hmm. you've um, you, you've figured out you know where your story's going, and then you want to, you're basically doing your first draft. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an idea of um, firstly how long did this first draft take for this book, but also whether you have any kind of routine or writing practice, like you know you aim for a certain number of word count per day or you write in the morning and you edit in the afternoon or not edit or you mm. research or whatever, do something else. Just some kind well, of idea edit, of your actually. creative yeah, practice. Edit, edit, oh, it is, yeah, right, yeah. I mean, what I, I tend to do, um, I try and write all of a part before editing it. But um, like so many writers, um, it's so difficult starting on any given day and you're tired and you know that your house needs milk and, um, <laughs> you, you know, these sort of things that my car was making a squeaking noise. What is that? You know, all of the, the practicalities of, of mundane quotidian existence kind of come and stop you. And, and, you know, in my case, I have, uh, two small kids. Um, so all of that means, you know, in principle, I want to be a writer, but this morning 
I don't want to be a writer. I kind of I want to go back to bed, or I need to call a plumber, or you know. And the way I I kid myself into work is to tell myself I, I get myself to my desk as early as my children will let me. Mm. Um, I'm I'm responsible for the kinder drop off, and um, once I I um, drop the kids off and I get to to my office, I now since having children. I had to get an office away from where I live. Away and this from is, home? Yeah, this is the oh. first the first um, adult novel. I wrote a novel for children that came out last year called mm. The Adventures of Catwinkle. But mm. those two books are the first books I've written away from where I was living ever. Um, before that, oh. I'd written all my, all my books um, where I was living. What's your so, office like? How did you choose this office? I'm intrigued. Well, um, my wife found it for me, actually, and it's fantastic, although at the moment, currently, disgustingly untidy. Um, but it's um, oh, it's probably one and a half K away from where we live. And um, it's in a, uh, th- there was a 19th century mansion that was 10 or 12 years ago, converted into apartments. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so it has high ceilings and everything, and I have the smallest of the apartments, and everybody else lives here uh, except me. I, I work here, and I, I come and go from here, and I can conceivably walk home, and uh, it's it's really a lovely spot, and it, it's quite sort of central. It's not at all far from shops, but it's tucked in a little side street that's all leafy green. So I really, you know, um, <laughs> along with uh, many other reasons, I, I have my wife to thank for this too. That and, sounds great. <laughs> you know, it, I've really been lucky um, in this regard. So, do and, you can you leave your can you leave work there? Do you or do you find yourself editing and start bringing it home and editing and doing stuff? Well, that's there? that's the only downside um, that uh, because it's not literally where I live, uh, I can make notes and I email parts of my work to myself, but I invariably find that I can't really work from home, you know, with the kids there and, Mm. you know, domestic duties and stuff. Um, So I'm not – I'm barely tempted to try to add a bit more or do some editing at at the end of the day. But, you know, it's the – it's the advantage of being a full-time writer. The disadvantage, of course, is <laughs> incredible economic insecurity. Um, but, <laughs> you know, the, it means I come, I come to this office and that's where I work. That's where I get it done. And, but it, having said that, uh, yes, of course, like pretty much every writer, there are many occasions where you don't feel like writing. You're not in the mood and you're thinking – I'm not feeling like any kind of writer. I'm feeling like somebody who's, um, you know, yeah, worried about a squeaking noise in their car or, you know, a leaky tap in in your house. And I kid myself, okay, you know, don't worry. You're not being asked to work. You're just going to your desk to look at your computer to read over what you wrote yesterday. And then invariably I start editing uh, not not sort of a wholesale edit, uh, but just tinkering, I guess you'd call it. Yeah. Yes. Then once I've tinkered right up to the last sentence I wrote the day before, I 
gently start adding a line or two and before you know it, I'm writing new stuff. And I, you know, I kind of, I know I'm doing this because I've been doing it for years, but it's how I con myself into getting back to work when I don't feel like it. And then you find that you do feel like it because, hey, that's quite a nice idea. And, you know, I'm, I'm back with these characters that I, I want to be with and I'm furthering the plot. And here's the scene that I was looking forward to writing and, you know, bang, I'm, I'm back in it. And it's a way of sort of uh, conning myself into work when you don't necessarily feel like it. So do you have a word count target? Uh, not really. I mean, I have um, more a scene target, if you right. like. Um, mm. But having said that, I'll do anything to forgive myself. So I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, well, you didn't finish the scene, but it's a long scene. Look how many words <laughs> Or, uh, you know, that's a very, you didn't write much, but you finished the scene. That's great. You finished the, so, I mean, I think as a writer, you're always got to be kind to yourself um, because, you know, the rest of the world is frequently not kind to you. But presumably you had a deadline for this. Did you? Did you have a deadline for this one? I did. I always have a deadline. Yeah. I mean, I have uh, contracts for the books. Yeah. And um, I ran late with the deadline in part uh, because, I was involved in the adaptation of um, one of my previous novels, Seven Types of Ambiguity, mm-hmm. uh, was adapted uh, into a six-part series for the yes. ABC. And I was involved in that, and it took up a lot of time. And then in the middle of, of uh, working on the novel, on, on maybe The Horse Will Talk, talk um, Trump was elected, and I was, uh, like a lot of people, very upset mm-hmm. about this. And particularly uh, despondent uh, about the growing tolerance for intolerance around Mm -hmm. the world. And I thought, where do we even start? And it led me back to uh, an idea that I'd had and told my young niece uh, when she was a little girl uh, about a cat and a dog who are forced to live together and not expected to get along and they become best friends and then they have to worry about the fallout from the respective cat and dog communities. Mm-hmm. And um, my niece kept telling me, I first told her this story when she was four and over the years she'd been telling me, you've got to write this down, you've got to write this down and I was working on other things like The Street Sweeper and mm-hmm. and then the TV show and... Um, and then when Trump came in, she said, you really have to write this down now. And by this stage, she was, she was 17. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and I thought, you know what, you're absolutely right. So I took a break from the novel that I didn't tell anyone about, um, including my adult publisher, publisher of my adult books. And I said, look, I've got good news and bad news. Um, I'll give you the bad news first. Uh, I wanted to write a children's novel here's the good news. I've already done it. (laughs) So uh, you might be thinking that's going to take time away from the novel, but I've already done it. So it won't take any more time away. And um, fortunately, um, Puffin, the children's imprint of Penguin, my publisher, uh, wanted wanted to publish it. So um, that's how I got my entree into the world of children's lit. Um, but, yes, yeah, so there were lots of things that interrupted me, uh, not to mention um, two small kids. Yes. So, uh, you know, all of these things meant it was a long time between the original concept of the novel and 
delivering it and I did have to ask for more time, which fortunately I was granted. What was it like writing the children's book? Um, did you find it to be to have different challenges or that you had to ha- go through a different process to get your headspace into that age group? Definitely different challenges, um, but I should say incredible fun. Um, on the one hand, you're freer because um, you can be whimsical as I was and, and you know, it, it's written for the age group between 7 to 11 and the world of it doesn't make, doesn't conform um, to the real world. But it, it it has to be internally consistent within itself. But it is, um, you know, animals talk and there are all sorts of animals that, you know, turn up in cities that you don't normally see. Um, it's set in Amsterdam and there's a llama there, you know. So you don't normally see llamas walking down the streets of Amsterdam, um, among other things that happen that don't really happen. Uh, so that was freeing. But what was... Um, in a sense, much more constrained was my word choice. Um, I would try, even in the first draft, not to use too many words that I wasn't certain kids in that age group would understand. And that means you run the risk of repeating yourself because Mm. if you only have a certain, uh, you have a smaller word choice, so you're going to have to draw on the same words more often than you normally would. And then um, there is the issue of, well, which words do you use if, I mean, I have a, maybe calling it a philosophy, might be putting it too highly, but a a view, an opinion, that it's no bad thing to have the occasional word which is just slightly out of the the ken of of children Mm -hmm. so that they would you know reach for it they have to stretch to, to grasp it and they will understand it in context but they wouldn't understand it uh, on its own they wouldn't necessarily be able to define it or use it in a sentence by themselves uh, because I think that's how we learn mm-hmm. and um, and and also I had the view that I wanted to make this entertaining for adults because if you can get um, a reading experience going where you've got a parent or a grandparent or a, a teacher or a, a caregiver of any kind sharing the experience with the child, it's so much richer mm. um, and it, it's a lovely experience. And, of course, if the parent is enthused about the story, uh, the child can't help but notice that. Mm. So I, I tried to do, you know, what what is – often attempted and, and, you know, one of the best, uh, most successful examples of this would be The Simpsons, where it's got so many layers of of understanding that the tiniest children can just enjoy the the images and think it's a bit silly and a bit funny and then older children enjoy a bit more and and adults are getting it because it's quite quite satirical. Mm. So... um, I'm not saying it's like The Simpsons, but, you know, that that was a, an example of something that was very successful, incredibly successful at doing something I wanted to try and do with mm. The Adventures of Catfinkel. 
So you have your finger in many pies, fingers in many pies. What uh, have you already started thinking about your next novel? I what often happens is um, I I'm, I get ideas all the time, yeah. and I I have these little blue notebooks. I have one in front of me right now, and um, I make notes, and the notes are um, they can be as small as. Uh, a few words, a phrase, um, something that I heard or misheard, um, something that I read, or it can be a paragraph that it's the beginning of something, uh, as though that were the final draft of something, or it can be um, sentences that form a plot, but they're not, um, you know, it's not good quality writing, but it's an idea that appeals to me in terms of um, linking one event to another. Mm-hmm. And I have little books of, of these notes that I make over the years and they form ideas that sort of leap up at me and say, choose me, choose me, you know, <laughs> make me your next thing. Yes. I'm and I, I haven't know. actually decided, I haven't yet sort of um, put a ring around any one of these yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still in, I'm still promoting Maybe the Horse Will Talk. I'm curious to know with your little blue notebooks, do you, how are they actually used in that, are they used in your office or is it the kind of thing that would um, be, you carry around and if you're on the bus or, or whatever and you notice something interesting, you, you're jotting stuff down? I used to carry them around and then I got so, uh, you know, terrified of losing them um, oh. that, that I, I, I left them in my office and, and look, I've had all sorts of, yeah, this is going to, uh, you know, point to a kind of uh, neurosis in me. Um, so let's get it out in the open. Um, <laughs> uh, I used to have notebooks beside my bed and then when, when I still worked from home, I'd have a notebook beside my bed. And when I say notebook, I don't mean a laptop. I mean, you know, literally a, 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 pe- a pen and paper of some mm-hmm. kind. And I'd have a notebook, you know, in on my desk in the in the, off- the home office where I would work. And I found if I had a notebook by my bed, the quality of the notes I was making uh, – significantly diminished but if I was forced to get up out of bed and go down the hall to my home office I found that what I was writing was more likely to be useful and good than um, you know some bit of rubbish I might scrawl as I lay beside my bed because it was so easy you know and right. Any, anything that came into my head you just write down you think why did I write that down that's yeah. you know that's not very good. Um, so, you know, that was one stage. And then, then I, um, I mean, my notebooks would be incredibly um, useless to anybody else. Some, you know, they're not proper sentences or, you know, they're, they're scrawled. And, mm. um, but I've looked at them over the years and seen just how much is uh, that ends up in my books mm. starts – you know, finds is born inside these notebooks. Um, it's it's quite crazy. Do you think it's the mere uh, act of writing it down? Even you, you might not have even gone back to look at the particular notebooks, but it's ended up in your books. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, definitely. It's definitely the act of writing it down. Um, and, and then what would happen is, especially since, um, you know, I wrote my first couple of books longhand. Are you serious? I'm serious. Like my first novel, Three Dollars, <gasps> no. the first, first draft was longhand. Um, and and um, it was only later when I started writing my first drafts on computer mm. that um, I would then make what I call for myself uh, worksheets or, you know, I don't know, it's, it's not that they're worksheets, but they're just, it, it's, think of it as a, um, uh, a canvas mm. and you throw stuff at it. And the stuff you throw can be anything from, uh, you know, the idea um, Valerie calls Elliot. The phone line drops out at exactly the moment when she says what time they're due to meet. He goes to meet. If she's not there, he forms a wrong idea. Mm. You know, we're off. Mm. So something that was going to work really well. And 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 then it could be um, – you know, so that's like the beginning of a plot. Mm. So it's it's fairly fundamental to a story. But then there could be some sort of description or that that will come next, and then there'll be another plot idea, and then I move them all around, um, and and that's done on computer. But I used to not do it on computer, and I used to do it all longhand in the first place, and then, you know, only only edit on compute computer. Right. Wow, that's extraordinary. Okay, now I could talk to you. Well, it's it's it's. I'm still processing it. Um, I could talk to you all day, but we're almost to the end of um our chat. So I have to ask you what your top three bits of advice are for aspiring writers who hope to be in a position like you are one day, you know, where they're writing stuff that they're passionate about um, and, and they're writing full-time, they're writing novels. What are your top three bits of advice? Wow, top three bits of advice. Um, I think this one's, this one's important. Don't let, don't let other people tell you that you can't do it, mm. um, but don't keep doing it indefinitely if it's hurting you. What I mean by that, yeah. what I mean by that is, um, so uh, I got started. I got published because I won the age short story competition, uh, which I don't think they even have anymore. Mm. Um, some twenty five years ago, mm. and um, had I come second, we probably wouldn't be talking now. And the difference between coming first and second is entirely subjective. Mm. And, and it's not fair on a person who comes second. And you can make that same point about a person who doesn't place. They were going to come third, but they didn't. And now they're fifth and we've never heard of them. Yeah. And no one knows that they're fifth and they don't know that they're fifth. Yeah, right. So they were, they were going to give up. They nearly won. And when another judge was about to be appointed to judge that short story competition, mm. uh, you would have won because that other judge likes the stuff you try and write mm. more than the winner. But they weren't appointed because something happened in their life and now you find you didn't win and you're about to quit. Mm. Don't quit because you haven't won prizes or you haven't yet been published. There is a time to quit. And the test, I think, is this. When it hurts you more to keep going than it does to stop, 
then you should stop. Wow. And why, why should it hurt you to keep going? Because um, if you're really serious about it as a craft mm. and you keep going and, you know, you, you turn down social invitations because you're working on it and you, you know, it's eating into your self-confidence because it's not working out and it's so important to you. Mm. Ask yourself, how would I feel if I stopped? And if you stopped and felt better, then continuing to go because I, I have this conversation with a lot of aspiring writers, mm. um, you know, when I go and give classes at times and, um, you know, they're often young people, mm. usually young people and they're very bright young people. Um, and they might have friends that go on to become, you know, lawyers or something and, and getting, they're getting paychecks regularly put into their bank account. And the aspiring writer is taking jobs that, uh, will sooner or later economically humiliate them and they see their friends getting, you know, I don't know, a new car or a, a deposit on an apartment and then a house and they're still not because they're putting all of their passion into their writing. That's when you've got to ask yourself the question, if, if you're in your late 20s, maybe it's not too bad. If you're in your late 30s, maybe you're starting to worry about it. If you're in your 40s and you are still doing a job that economically humiliates you and nothing's happened with your writing yet, ask yourself the question, would it hurt me more to stop or to keep going? And the answer, mm. which is entirely personal, mm. should dictate what you do. Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a mammoth tip. That's, 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 um, can give me a lot of food for thought too. And I'm sure many other people, um, but I'm going to ask you for your other two. Oh, was that not two? Um, <laughs> that was well, so it big. Was signed, it, it, was, it was worth two. I'll give you that. Okay. Well, look, uh, my, my other one, which I've sort of uh, said already, and this is my choice, mm. um, I strongly recommend it, but there are people who prefer not to do this. Try and think of your ending before you get too mm -hmm. far into it because that will determine whether even you think it's a good idea. I think, and it'll it'll strengthen, it'll make more taut, it'll make your writing more taut, I think. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right. Um, I won't pu push you for another one because that first one was quite mammoth. Um, <laughs> but, look, thank you so much for your time today. Congratulations on Maybe the Horse Will Talk. I highly recommend it for everyone listening. Go get it. Go read it. It's awesome. Um, and um, thank you so much, Elliot. Thanks, Valerie. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. There you go, Elliot Perlman. It's always great to talk to different types of writers and their books. And, you know, I just love the fact personally, I mean, obviously that probably came across. I love the fact that it's set in a corporate environment because I don't actually think that many books are, are set in that space.
Mm. So it's good. I need some excellent writer. And, of course, oh, Kerry Sackville will be very excited to hear that uh, interview because she just loves him. Every time there's any mention of Elliot Perlman anywhere, she, uh, you know, our friend Kerry Sackville, if anyone hasn't come across Kerry's wonderful writing and very hilarious social media posts and you should go and find her immediately Um, but every time I hear Elliot Perlman's name I just think of her and and how much she adores his work there you go Kerry we did that interview just for you just for you (laughs) what are you doing in the coming week Al uh, what am I doing? Uh, good question. I don't know. It's that time of the year. I don't even know. I think I I'm know. going to various school assemblies and I think I'm, you know, it's that. I'm at that point in my life right now. So, mm. yeah, I just lose track. The whole the family calendar becomes somewhat difficult to manage from about the 1st of December onwards. So, you know, it's all, it's all, it's all over as far as I'm concerned. It's yes. just one thing after another now. Don't ask me. What about you? What will you be doing? (laughs) I am the same. I am losing track. And I've realized actually that I just even keep forgetting to tell anyone, like whether on this podcast or even on my social media at the, like the library talks that I'm doing or anything like that. I really need to broadcast it in case it's a good opportunity to meet people in our community. I just, I don't know. Here we are. (laughs) <laughs> telling people every week I know to organize themselves to make sure that they promote oh. their work to make sure that they get the oh. word out to make sure that they you know amplify every opportunity and there you are I know crazy right mm-hmm. bad me all right mm-hmm. um where do we find you online now You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Valerie, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. You'll find all of the show notes at soyouwanttobearwriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.